Let's pray. Father, um, I want to come before you again right now. Ask that you will teach us by your Holy Spirit. Help us to understand this word that we have before us today, this passage. Um, Make my words clear so that we can respond in faith to whatever it is that you teach us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you turn with me to Mark chapter 5. That's where we're, we're back in Mark. It's been about a month or so since we've been in, in the Gospel of Mark, and um, it's been way too long. So let's, let's get into that today. Do you guys remember what's been going on in, in Mark's Gospel? Um, here in chapter 5, um, we get, we're getting to a point where um, in, in some ways it's more of the same. Jesus is traveling about. Jesus is meeting people. Jesus is doing amazing things. Um, and uh, so we're going we're gonna to try to look at this story, which is, which is a very powerful and even somewhat scary story. This is... Of all of the of all of the stories in the gospel, um, this is one of those frightening encounters that Jesus had with somebody who was in a real desperate place. So um, we're going to look at that today. So find that, but uh, before we before we look in depth at this passage, um, do you guys realize that we're in a war? Does it affect you day day by day, or um, or do you just kind of go on with your lives, business as usual, um, living, working, playing, um, not really mindful of of the situation that's all around us? In fact, we're in a war that's um, that has an enemy that's bent on destruction. Um, bent on terror, bent on lies and deceit. In fact, it's a it's a war that's that that has no front lines. In fact, it's it's like an insurgency. It is an insurgency, and it's all around us, and it's in our communities, and even even affecting and infiltrating our homes. It's all over the place. It's a desperate war. And it's and the and the the evidence of this war is in despondency, depression and and anxiety. It's evidenced in addiction. It's evidenced in rebellious behavior and disobedience. It's it's evidenced in hatred. It's evidenced in lines being drawn between parties and ethnic groups and any other social demographic you can think of. It's evidenced in immorality. It's evidenced in lying and theft and murder. It's evidenced in the darkness that's in our hearts. What will deliver us from this mad war, from this destruction? That's what I want us to look at today. I want us to get an answer. I, I need an answer. I need healing for my soul. I want to experience deliverance. The, the war 
The war is wearing us down. It's wearing me down. So would you stand with me as we look at Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 all the way to 20. I'll read it aloud as you follow along with me. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and have a seat. Um, The enemy, the enemy, folks, destroys lives. The enemy destroys lives and, and... The way he does it, the way he loves to do it, and the way he chooses to do it. And I have not seen anyone in this situation that the enemy has not had a foothold in and has not had had some kind of victory over. And it's he does that in isolation. Look at the situation that's going on here. The setting is that Jesus has just come across the sea. He just calmed the storm. The, the disciples had just said, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? And then He pops out of the boat onto the shore of this place. And as immediately upon coming out of the boat and onto the shore, here's this crazy man. Here's this, this man who's just a lunatic. Here's this man who's probably running around naked. I don't know if you've seen... Some of those Jesus, the, the old Jesus movies that are out there. But there's one, there, there man's scurrying around. He's like, 
I was a little boy when I was one. He doesn't have any clothes on, Dad, Mom. What's going on there? Yeah, because he's, he's possessed by a demon. And you, and you read that description there of, of he lived among the tombs and no one could bind him and his strength and he's breaking them and, and they couldn't subdue him. They couldn't tame him. And he's among the tombs night and day in the mountains and the hills and he's cutting himself. He's just so desperate. The situation in here is so vivid. There's no other description of any person that I have ever come across in the Bible. And I've read the Bible through a few times and I've never seen somebody described quite like this. But there he is all alone. And, that, and that's just emphasized. Mark seems to just pound it into our heads. He's among the tombs. He's all alone. He's, he's by himself. Whether, whether he was kicked out or whether he, he was self-chosen exile, he's in this desperate, lonely place and the enemy is destroying his life. The enemy, Jesus says, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come to give life, and that abundantly. And Peter wrote later, The enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. The enemy is like that lion who's picking off the isolated members of the herd. It's like the wolf pack that is prowling around in, in Yellowstone National Park. And anytime there's a sickly deer or some other creature that can't keep up with everybody else, it picks them off, tears them to pieces, destroys them. That's what the enemy has been doing from the very beginning been destroying and distorting people. Genesis chapter 1. God said, let us make man in our image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female, He created them. And He gave them a, he gave them a, a, a commission to, to fill the earth and subdue it. Right? The enemy came to sow seeds of lies and deceit and distorted that image. And there's no better illustration of a distorted image than this one right here. The enemy destroys lives and he does so in isolation. Do you see this? He's isolated from other people and then when they have this conflict and he says, what are you doing here? What do you want with me? He's saying, Jesus, I don't want anything to do with you. Get away from me. It's almost like immediately after stepping out of the boat, there, there meets him this man. It's like the whole country, that whole region. It's, he uses the, the English uh, standard version, uses the term region, country. Well, he's, they use the term country here. And that's repeated a little bit later. But this whole country is like resisting Jesus. We don't want anything to do with you. We don't want anything to do with you in our lives or in our place. I don't know about you, but the enemy has had 
victory in my life when I'm in isolation. When I am alone and by myself. Have you guys experienced that? Yet you, you get all alone and that's when the temptation starts to take its course. starts to wear you down. We're not meant for that. I've, um, I've known people now. I've, I've, my entire life has been spent serving God in, in, in His church and, and trying to figure out how to uh, fight temptation and, and trying to figure out what it means to be the church. And um, I'm still working on that. But I have seen people over and over and over again pull away. Pull away from, from God's church. Pull away from, their, from other believers. And seeing the enemy wreak havoc in their lives. Let me urge you. Maybe, maybe you're not in the situation of this man here. But let me urge you to resist isolation. And, you know, any chance you get, let's try to, let's try to counter the lie that if it's just you and Jesus and the woods and, you, you know, your own, doing your own thing, that you're okay and that you're going to be good and that you're going to grow. Because it is a lie. It is not good for man to be alone. Now, that doesn't, that's not just a statement about men and women in marriage. It's about us as people. The Lord, though, places some great value on human lives. The end of the story, Jesus leaves. Spoiler alert, right? We've already read that. He, gets, he steps foot in this region and he saves one man and then he goes back the other way. The Lord places great value on humanity and on, on individual lives. Those that He has created in His image. Those who are the crowning work of His creation. He loves them. And He wants them to be made whole. He wants them to be delivered from this evil, from this darkness. And so, there's the conflict here in the story when, G, when, when the man is, is falling down, literally prostrated before Jesus and he's crying out with a loud voice and, and it's crazy what he says, but he says, what do you want from me? <laughs> what have you to do with me? It says, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. And he's asking him not to torment him. And then, and then Jesus, of course, Jesus ha- was saying, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. But then Jesus says, what is your name? The spirit says, I know your name. You're Jesus, the son of the most high God. So Jesus says, what is your name? Now, that may seem a little... First of all, how did this, how did this man know who Jesus was? Well, he had evil spirits in him who were aware of exactly who Jesus was and who his deity was. They knew exactly who he was. He was son of the Most High God. Um, little footnote there, that's code for they knew he was God in the flesh. They knew who that's who he was. 
The Most High God was one, a favorite name for God in the Old Testament. They recognized Him. And I think that what we have here is a, we have a battle ensuing. The conflict is, is who can have mastery over the other person? The demons, maybe they were thinking, not that I'm worshiping. Not that I'm worshiping Jesus. There's a, so much irony here, right? The man is kneeling before Him. But the demons are, are speaking through Him. Trying to have mastery. If in, the old, in, in this time... In, in Judaism, in the ancient Near East, it was thought that if you could name your enemy, you could have mastery over him. Especially in the, in the spirit world. So you would figure out what the name of that evil spirit was, and then you would speak that name and have mastery over it. We've seen that before already, haven't we? All the way back in chapter 1, when... An unclean spirit said, What do you or what have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus said, um, It doesn't work that way. A magic incantation will not get me to do what you want. A, ma- a, 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 a statement of my name will not cause me to submit to you. That's not how it works. But nonetheless, Jesus says, what's your name? And you you got to pay attention, close attention to the response. He says, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, this wasn't just an unclean spirit. (laughs) This was unclean spirits. This man is not just possessed by a demon, but he's possessed by hell. If you want to think of it that way. A legion, Roman legion, could be, it, it was two or three thousand soldiers, actually. Um, maybe two thousand. I don't know, there were two thousand pigs in the story as well. But just as the Romans held control of Judea and Galilee and all of these all of these places just how they had come and occupied and and had mastery over this land and and these people the the demons here multiple demons had mastery over this man and so in his desperate state the man begs him not to send them out of the country. Maybe they thought, here we're safe from Jesus. Here we have control. Here, Jesus, this is not your place. Go back home where you came from. We've got this place. Don't send us out of here. They, they may have thought that they had some kind, of a, some kind of a good thing going on there. That Jesus would just leave them alone. But Jesus saw his desperate state. He has a legion. And he cares about him. And so he's going to do something. And then you get this pig thing, right? The swine. The herd of pigs. What's going on here? There are, there's a great herd of pigs nearby. And they said, Let's go, let us go into the pigs. Let, you know, we'll go there. Send us there. Hmm. So he let them. And they come out 
of a man and they enter the pigs, 2,000 of them, and they all drown in the sea. So we uh, sitting down with my family recently and we were reading this passage about a week and a half ago or so in family worship. And So what are your questions about this passage? Why? Why the poor pigs? Why, why did the poor pigs have to die? Well, there are a few theories. Um, would you like to hear some of them? I don't know. Maybe you don't. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. But one of the theories is that is that um, Jesus was was doing this as an outward sign to convince other people that the man really was clean now, that the unclean spirit or this legion was gone, and so this sign that the the evil spirits come out of the man, they go into the pigs, and the pigs d- drown in the sea. That you know. There's, there's, there's evidence there. It's not just that, you know, we don't know what happened, we can't see anything, but they actually see evidence of the Spirit coming out of the man. And another, another uh, theory is that, um, is that Jesus was protecting the man himself, the, his own person, from destruction by sending the pigs out into other creatures. Uh, Something like, um, one, one commentator called it like a lightning rod. A lightning rod that might be put on the top of a building to attract lightning and that goes into the ground rather than hitting a building or hitting something else that's important. So kind of a lightning rod or lightning conductor for these evil spirits. Maybe, maybe Jesus simply did this to show His power and His authority over these demons. They had, been, they had been oppressing him for how long? We don't know. We don't have a timeline. But f- for as far back as people could remember, this man was roaming the hills and the tombs and he could not be subdued. Literally, he could not be tamed. They tried to heal him. They tried to help him, but they couldn't. And so Jesus did this to show that his power was greater than the evil spirits who had tried to destroy this man's life. A related, a related theory is that what was the purpose, you know, we, if we think about what was the purpose of the evil spirits? What was the purpose of, of demons? To distort a life and to destroy it. Their true purpose was total destruction. That's what they wanted from the man. And they had been unable to do that. And by sending them out into the pigs, their true purpose was revealed. And it's revealed to you and I as well. Not only a man wretched in this state, but we see that their true purpose is to destroy life. Whatever the case is, the pigs drowned. And those who came, those who reported it, who saw it and reported it and came back, 
were pretty concerned about the situation. Why? Why were all of these pigs destroyed? What's going on here? What have you done, Jesus? That was our livelihood. <laughs> but Jesus wasn't concerned about pigs. He was concerned about this man and his soul and his life. And for him, it was worth the cost. It was worth the cost. We definitely have to also consider another factor in the story. I think Mark wants us to know about. There met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. That phrase is used many times. But he also, this country, this region that, he, that Jesus had arrived in and that, where this man lived, was a region mostly populated by Gentile people, non-Jewish people. In fact, for most good religious people of the time, that was a place you didn't go to very often. Why? Because unclean people lived there. <laughs> That's where unclean people lived. So we didn't go there. And then, here's a little hint. Pigs are not really clean creatures in more than one way. They love to roll around in the mud. They love to get all nasty. But also, they were one of the creatures. They were like number one on the list of things not to eat if you were a good Jew. Don't hang out with pigs. <laughs> Remember the story of the uh, prodigal son, the lost son? He goes off, squanders all of his wealth on wild living, and then he gets a job feeding pigs. And so... If you were a good Jewish person listening to that story, you would go, oh man, he is as low as you... I mean, he, he has just... He has hit rock bottom because being a pig herdsman is rock bottom. Feeding pigs. They're an unclean creature. So you see this is all over the place. These unclean... And it's not like Jesus doesn't care about the animals. That, but... I think he's showing us something about what he does over uncleanness. His power over it. And so, it was worth the cost to him. Have you ever, um, have you ever questioned, those of you especially who, who, who care about money and things like that, have you ever questioned spending resources on things that you're like, yeah, but... But so little is accomplished. If people judged um, the River Church and the four years or so of, of support, financial support that we've received, would they go, gosh, I don't know. Was it worth it? Uh, what was the return on investment? Right? You know that term, right? Return on invest investment, ROI. It's what everybody wants to know. Is this going to be a good investment? If I invest my money, my time, my energy into this, will it yield results? Will it be worth it? And I don't know. The livelihoods of these people, unclean as they were, herding pigs, unclean as they were, was a catastrophe to their local economy. You just have to assume that. It's implied in the story. But yet, Jesus came to deliver that one person. I think of that when we do summer children's program. Is it worth it? 
Is it worth the cost? Is it worth the, t- the time and the energy? But when these children are hearing the good news of Jesus, and when some of them are making decisions for Christ, and, and believe it or not, uh, believe it or not, a mailer, we didn't send any mailers out this year, but in the past, I, a mailer brought a family to our church and a confession of faith and a baptism and covenant membership. <laughs> you know, it, was it worth the cost? Probably so. I think so. Have you ever questioned the, the, the cost of investing in mission trips and things like that? I mean, what's the return on investment on things like that? There are certain things we just don't know. So let me encourage us to not base our obedience on a suspected return on investment. But base our, base our obedience on God's calling on our lives. What He says is right. What He commands us to do. To be with Him in bringing healing. To be with Him in spreading the message. Being a witness. Well, that kind of gets us into the, right into this, this final thought and really what, what is the big idea of this whole passage. And that is that it is that the Lord delivers people from the effects of the enemy. The Lord delivers people from the effects of the enemy. And I would add this too. For the marvelous praise of God. The very end, did you see, see what was the last word in this passage? Marveled. It says, everyone marveled. They heard what the Lord had done, what Jesus had done, and they marveled. And that's what Jesus is after. That's what God is after. He's after, he's, he's delivering people to the praise of, of God. He wants to bring people into His kingdom, out of darkness. He's doing that to bring greater glory to Himself and greater joy to us so that we can spend an eternity in His presence. So that our distorted image can be restored. Look at what happened to the man. After the herdsmen fled, and they tell it in the city and in the country, and they come back, and then what do they see in verse 15? They see the one who had the demon, who had the legion, says, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they rejoiced. No, it doesn't say that. <laughs> It says they were afraid. What man is this who can calm a demon-possessed man? They were afraid. But see what Jesus did? He, what He did for this man? He restored him back to the image that He was, he was meant to bear. He was delivered. And and there's a great calm about Him. Just like in the previous story, there was a great calm on the sea. When Jesus spoke, when Jesus did a work, there was a great calm. And there is this man restored. A great calm. It's a perfect, it's it's a beautiful picture of discipleship. 
There he is sitting at Jesus' feet. And he's, he's clothed, which is another requisite for discipleship. Keep your clothes on. Right? Alright. Wake up, everyone. And he's in his right mind. He's right. It's a really amazing picture. It's a really amazing scene of what God has done. But they were afraid, right? So, they begged Jesus to leave their region, to leave the country. The word region and country, it's translating the same word all throughout this passage, by the way. So when... When the demons say, don't send us out of this country. And when the people say, please depart from this country. Saying, this is not a, this, you're not welcome here, Jesus. We like the darkness rather than light. Maybe because our deeds are evil. They saw in this man, this God-man, a power that they couldn't tame either. <laughs> that if, if, we ha- if we could not tame this man, and then this one greater than us came and tamed him, we don't want to have anything to do with this guy. He reminds us, it reminds me of that scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan, the lion, the Christ figure in the story. And when, when the beavers, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, are telling the children about Aslan, and you remember what happens, how it's narrated? As soon as they spoke his name, the children, something stirred in them. Peter stirred up in the feelings of greatness and, and, and doing valiant things and, and winning battles and being a warrior. And, and each of the girls then in turn, Susan and Lucy, were, felt these, these surges of love and comfort and beauty and all of these things. And then Edmund uh, is feeling dread and disgust and horror. Oh, this person sounds terrible. I don't want to be in that person's presence. We respond in fear of Jesus when we hold on to sin. And that was Edmund's problem. He had sinned. He had, been de- he had deceived. He had, he had betrayed. And he couldn't stand the thought of somebody good like Aslan coming along. Because his sin would be confronted. It would be obvious in the presence of a holy and righteous God. But we respond in devotion to Jesus when we come to Him with our sins cleansed, forgiven, receiving mercy and grace. And when we hold on to Him, when we're seated seated before Him and He has changed us and put us in our right mind, we cannot be in Jesus' presence any other way. Because He's not tame. But he is good. So, you can't fault the man for saying, for begging 
Jesus that He might go with Him. Let me go with you. The phrase that He might be with Him is almost exact... Um, an exact repetition of what they said about the disciples in chapter 3 when Jesus appointed 12 so that they might be with Him. And you wonder, why, why wouldn't Jesus let Him come? Here's a man who's eager to follow. He wants to be with Jesus. I mean, His heart is for discipleship. He wants to know Him and be with Him and be present with Him. And this is a tricky part of the story because there are many ways in which we can be obedient to Jesus, many ways in which we can know Him. And the one way that Jesus wanted Him to follow Him and be obedient to Him was to go and tell. But I want to be with you. I don't want to stay in this region either. It's a dark place. It's a horrible place. I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to live in Yakima. I don't, know who's ever, I don't know if anyone's ever said that. You're in good company. But he's saying, I want to go with you, Jesus. I want to be where you are. I want to go on adventures. And Jesus is saying, no, go back to your home and your friends, your family, the ones, your, yours, <laughs> the ones who you have, you share something with and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. <laughs> See, Jesus comes to this place and the people say, we don't want you here. You're not welcome. Jesus, all right. I did what I came here to do. I came to deliver this man and I'm heading to the next, the next place, the next waypoint. But Jesus did not leave that region without a witness. So the man went and did some good math. The man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, that just means the ten cities, which was that region, how much Jesus had done for him. Do you see the math that was done? Lord equals Jesus. God equals Jesus. When Jesus is saying, tell your friends, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you, He's talking about the Godhead. And this man figures it out. That the Lord is Jesus. And Jesus has had mercy on me. And Jesus has, had done, has done much for me. And so then everyone marveled. There's some implications there, right? Mark is a... In many places, he's a man of few words. It's the shortest gospel. He, sh he shrinks things down. He doesn't always expand. So sometimes he uses one word or phrase to encapsulate a whole lot more, just like the message at the beginning. Um, you would love it if I just came and spoke a message and said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let us pray. And that was Jesus' first message. But that was just shorthand for all of the things that he unpacked in there, of all of the meaning... Uh, that was 
that was filling, filled in there. And, and so I, I assume, I think rightfully so, that when everyone marveled, they didn't just go, wow, this guy used to be crazy. This guy used to be demon-possessed, and now look at him. Well, yes, they did that, but there was more to that. They marveled because of what God had done for him, what Jesus had done for him. And he actually had a real witness because he could say, look, I once was blind, but now I can see. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was in darkness, and now I am in the kingdom of the sun. I wonder, I, I, I wonder this all the time, and... and Without, without, you know, selling you a, a, a ticket for a guilt trip, who is praising God because of your witness? Mark intends for us to take this seriously and to consider this. If this demon-possessed man could be such a witness to everyone's marveling at what Jesus... And he told, he proclaimed it in the entire city, in, in the ten cities... What Jesus had done for him. He wants us to go, that's what discipleship is like. That's what, how we should respond to this Jesus who has done this. And who is praising God because of our witness. When we leave this earth, I asked you this question last week. When we die, I don't care what people say about you. Oh, he did this, he, he built this business, or he had this success in his life, or, or whatever. But will they be praising God when you're gone? We have people in this community that by the grace of God are excited that a little church is restoring and rebuilding a building, a church. How's the church coming? I always ask people, do you mean the building or the people? And it's just my way of reminding myself not to get sucked into that, thinking that a church is a building and that once the building is built, we will have a church. The church is you people, you and I, we've been the church for four and a half years. That's the church. But people are excited about that building and what it represents. And, I'm, and I say that by God's grace, because of your witness, your faithfulness to Him. Yes, yes, that's God. It's a God thing, right? It's, but it's Philippians 2 verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Atheists are excited that we have a building. And they're excited to see something being restored. And they all are excited to see people being restored too. That's what, that's what this world needs to see more of. The title of this message how much has he done for you so let me address that let me ask that question right now how much has he done for you are you isolating yourself beware beware don't do it are you saying Jesus you're not welcome in this region or maybe it's a region of your heart I don't know, can I, use, can I do that? Can I do that spiritual metaphor thing? It's a place where you're like, no, you're, we like what you're doing, Jesus. You're doing great work. Keep it up. Just not here. Just not in me. Just not where I live. Or just not where I work or where I play. 
And do other people know how much He has done for you? It's, you know, being a witness is it's pretty simple on, on min- many levels. Is that we talk about what Jesus has done for us, how much He's done for us. And every one of us can do that who are in Christ. And we can tell how much God has done for us. And it is a beautiful thing. Will you pray with me? Father, I, I, um, I know that there is much to this story and there's much to... Um, there is much in our hearts and in each life here um, today that I, that I don't know. Um, but I do know this, that you are a God who is out to deliver us. He's out to deliver souls. His desire is to restore us to His image and to then conform us and transform us into the image of His Son, the exact representation of Your divine being, God. And that we would tell how much You have done for us and how You have had mercy on us. It's just... It's just Genesis 1 all over again to be fruitful and multiply and, and we do that now in your kingdom through the word that you have given us, the good news of Jesus. And I just pray that the joy of our salvation will be on our lips and that others will see and will marvel at it all and give glory to you, our good and gracious Father in heaven. Lord, um, in this time that we are responding today, I pray that not a, not a single person will walk away without having gotten right with you, made whatever decision that needs to be made, made it sure and confident today that their trust and hope is in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.